0: Hey, everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, guys, we're less than a year out, less than a year out from Election Day 2024. Please do all you can in your states, in your neighborhoods, in your communities to be involved. Guys, be your own bullhorn. Get involved with the Lincoln Project, lincolnproject.us or join Union.us. Go and find a campaign near your house. Run for something. Sign up to be a volunteer at a polling place. Do what you can. You don't have to do everything, gang, but you have to do that one thing. Figure out what that one thing is and go out and make it happen. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by author, television writer, and producer, and former federal prosecutor, Jonathan Shapiro. Jonathan has spent over two decades writing and producing some of television's most iconic shows, including The Blacklist, The Practice, Life, and Boston Legal. If a career in television wasn't enough, Jonathan spent a decade as a federal prosecutor and as an adjunct law professor at Loyola Law School and the University of Southern California's Gould School of Law. He is a graduate of Harvard University, a Rhodes Scholar at Oriel College, Oxford University, and received his law degree from the University of California at Berkeley. Today, he's coming to us from Los Angeles to discuss his newly released book, How to Be Abe Lincoln, Seven Steps to Leading a Legendary Life, which is now available wherever fine books are sold. Jonathan, welcome.
1: Thank you, Reed. I'm honored to be here. I'm a, I'm a long time listener and a first time caller, a huge fan of the Lincoln Project. So it's great to be here.
0: Well, you know, we don't get to do much Abe related stuff that often, so I'm glad I have the chance to do this. So let me ask you this. I just looked this up right before we started recording. There have been 15,000 books written about Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. 15,000. One, why did you think we needed the 15,000th and first? And second, why do you think that for a man who served four years and was amongst our greatest, if not our greatest president, I mean, these are the kind of things that like Cicero, Pericles, Seneca you know, Marcus Aurelius. Those are the kind of numbers that like the greatest figures in human history get those kind of numbers when it comes to the sort of different studies of an individual.
1: Well, it's even worse than that. I looked at it a little more deeply, and there's actually over 60,000 books written about Abe Lincoln. So Abe Lincoln is, I argue in my book, How to Be Abe Lincoln, the greatest American who has ever lived. And I have to say, my good and great friend Stuart Stevens, when he got involved in the Lincoln Project, got me thinking about how can I light a candle rather than just curse the darkness? What could possibly help us through this period of division we're in? And I thought, you know, Abe Lincoln lived in a time that was even worse than this. And his seven steps to being Abe Lincoln could not be more timely or relevant. It's really interesting to me that you talk about Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. Because, of course, Abe Lincoln was a Stoic, and in his personal library, he had Marcus Aurelius, and also the uh, people who compiled the book of Deuteronomy were writing at the exact same time. And so there are a lot of Stoic philosophy and books that I was raised with. So I just wanted to write a book that could help us all become better citizens, better Americans, and happier people. And I thought, you can't get a better role model than our 16th president.
0: So it's sort of self-help from old Abe.
1: The Latin word you're, you're looking for is hutzpah. Who in the name of God would write a book about Abe Lincoln when there are 60,000 already written? And I thought, well, nobody's written a how-to book. And I thought, you know, I love John Meacham's book, And There Was Light. I actually ran into John Meacham uh, this summer and told him how much I loved the book. And I told him that my book is the exact opposite of his. His book is uh, over 720 pages long and fabulous book. While I was reading it, falling asleep, it fell on my chest and I thought I was being suffocated. Every page is brilliant. It doesn't necessarily fly by. I wanted to write a self-help book that's 165 pages, which is what most self-help books are, where I give you seven steps. I put it in a cross so you can't forget it. And I guarantee you something, I could never guarantee a result as a lawyer. That's a violation of the rules of professional responsibility. But as a writer, I can guarantee you, if you read this book, you will create the conditions to live a much happier and better life.
0: Well, and so let's go through your acrostic. So they are laugh, improve, navigate, collaborate, object, love, and now. You know, as you talked about, and whether or not it's Meacham's book or many of the other books written about Lincoln, Lincoln was a, an inveterate storyteller, a raconteur. He was very funny, which you know the people that came to visit him, many of them loved it. Some of the people who were the more serious types of his cabinet thought he was a baboon, as Edward Stanton called
1: him. Right? You know the great story about that. Stanton calls him a baboon, and a journalist asks him what Lincoln thinks about Stanton calling him a baboon, and Lincoln said. Well, I'm not insulted. What worries me is Stanton is usually bright.
0: But that's a level of self-deprecation that is lost, not only amongst politicians, but anybody, well, too many of us, certainly, but also really anybody of note. The idea of displaying that level of vulnerability is not the kind of thing that people really today see as strength.
1: You're exactly right. And so the first step to being Abe Lincoln, as I say in my book, is to be able to laugh. And admittedly, I'm married to a comedy writer for 28 years who used to write on Friends and Roseanne, and she co-wrote the lyrics to Smelly Cat. So laughing is very important to me. And it was just or even more important to Lincoln. Lincoln said that if he did not laugh, he would cry. And elsewhere, he said if he did not laugh, he would not be able to continue to live. He suffered from depressions. At least on two occasions, his friends were worried enough that he might hurt himself that they took the razor blades out of his bathroom. And there were critics. I'm so glad you mentioned the critics. Horace Greeley, newspaper publisher, swore that he never found Lincoln funny and couldn't remember a single story he ever told, which says more about Horace Greeley than about Lincoln. But people used to go to the White House for the jokes more than to see the president. And Lincoln was unable to stop himself. There were those who thought he had a a kind of a Tourette syndrome, where he just couldn't stop joking. I always thought, and you can correct me, I always thought you guys called yourselves the Lincoln Project, not just because Lincoln was our greatest president, but that you recognize the power of laughter to create community. That like Lincoln, you understand that having a sense of humor if it's a self-deprecating sense of humor and if it's a community-based sense of humor, can be amongst the most powerful pedagogical devices that exist. It's not a mystery to me that the Ukraine is being led by a television comic. A man whose ability to make the community laugh is how he got into that position. And like Lincoln, Zelensky's proving to be Far greater than anyone might have imagined. But laughter is fundamental to being Lincoln, and no doubt about it.
0: All right. So then, you know, we move on. He's laughing, but as he's laughing, he's now improving. He thought that self improvement was a key thing. Now, remember, too, that this was a, you know, the famous log cabin born to a family that never really had much of anything. His father was terrible at business. He finally became an attorney, but at the same time, he read all he could. And he obviously, you know, look, I think at one point you said, you know, he lost an election for, you know, that was at the U.S. Senate against Stephen Douglas. And three years later, he's president and Douglas is dead.
1: Quite an improvement. What I love about Lincoln is he read self-help books. You know, in 2023, if you took all the books that are published in America, they wouldn't equal the number of books published about self-help. To be an American is to be obsessed with self-improvement. Lincoln read Benjamin Franklin's uh, autobiography, Poor Richard's Almanac. And there's a book that I identify in my book, which was a self-help book that was so important to Lincoln that he annotated it and then gave it to Mary Todd Lincoln. Abe Lincoln was the kind of guy who felt, and this was an American trait that I think we've lost. Abe Lincoln thought that if he was just given the materials, he could teach himself anything and that he had a moral obligation to do so. That improvement. Of sacred skills was the hallmark of being an American. It's why Emerson wrote the book Self Reliance. And I give you one example of it. On Mount Rushmore, there are four faces. Three of those faces belong to surveyors Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. The difference is Lincoln taught himself how to do it. He accepted a job as an assistant surveyor, then got a book on surveying, and then at night, after a hard day work on the farm, he taught himself how to be a surveyor. Now, in my book, I give you a site to go to look at the book that Lincoln used to become a surveyor. And I challenge you to do any of the algebra problems in that book. They're really complicated.
0: All right, Jonathan, this is your first time on the show, so let me admonish you. I was told there would be no
1: math. All right. You can skip that part of the book. You know, there's th- None of this will be on the final. <laughs> but Abe Lincoln was the kind of guy who, Talking about laughter, he was obsessed with seeing other comics. Even as a little boy, he would go see preachers give sermons for the sole purpose of learning how to mimic them better for his friends. I mean, this was a guy that we would have loved to hang out with. There were people who spent their whole careers working for Lincoln for the laughs, for the humanity of the guy. And when you say we don't have a lot of that in our leaders today, you're not kidding. But it's Absolutely required that all of us, rather than curse the situation, be Lincoln. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo.
0: If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all in one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit Odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O D O O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. I want to talk about the improvement that you talked about as far as Americans are concerned, because the idea of hard work is not simply that you go out and you toil the same field every day. Right? Although some people might do that, was the idea that if you toiled your field well enough, you grew enough crops. Maybe you had a nicer house, you had a family, maybe you bought the field next to you, right? There was always a ladder that you could climb. No question. But you had to do the work, regardless of what it was or what it is. And now it's like, how do I make as much money doing as little as possible to be as famous as I can for doing as little as possible and making as much money as I could? I'm probably being unfair, but that's, you know, you could make a commentary on, you know, look at 900 reality tv shows or game shows or you know america's got talent or singers or whatever the case might be it's like okay i don't want to necessarily you know write songs play in my garage with my friends go to the open mic nights play in the clubs right do this finally get picked up i'm gonna go on american idol because i can cut through all that and if i have at least eight good nights jonathan then i'll be famous i'll be rich And I'll have, you know, some broken down songwriter write my songs and I'll have just enough of a
1: career to live on the royalties. Right. So I say in my book that uh, if you want to be famous for fame's sake, this book cannot help you. No book can help you. And I say that these are seven steps to leading a legendary life. And in my introduction, I say I use the word legendary the way that Lincoln would have understood the word, which is worthy of fame. That is, worthy of being esteemed by your fellows because of the life you have led and the contributions you've made and the virtues you've embraced. And this is not me guessing. Lincoln told us this is how he meant legendary. He famously said when he was a young man, I'm quoting from the book, every man is to have his peculiar ambition. Whether it be true or not, I can say for one, that I have no other ambition so great as that of being truly esteemed of my fellow men by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. See, we've gotten sidetracked in America. It used to be you wanted to be legendary because you deserved to be esteemed by your fellows because you lived by classic principles of honesty, truth, service, etc., Somehow, and I blame my business, I've been doing TV for 24 years, I'm as guilty as anyone, people have decided, no, 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 what matters isn't your virtue or your principles or your sacrifice. What matters is that you've got good cheekbones and you will do anything for people to look at you, including set your hair on fire. And so this book is meant as a real hope that maybe we can get back to what made America truly great. Because we, we we have fallen far from it. But we can get back there. And this book tells us how.
0: All right. So speaking of getting back there, let's talk about the next one, which is navigate. Now, certainly there were no shortage of things that Lincoln needed to navigate in his life, and certainly his presidency, elected in eighteen sixty, takes office in eighteen sixty one. Civil War starts shortly thereafter, six hundred thousand dead Americans, the Emancipation Proclamation. The South is defeated. Interesting that he he never called the South the Confederate States of America. He always referred to it as an insurrection. He wasn't going to give them the legal or moral authority of after having successfully left the Union, which I always thought was interesting. But talk to us a little bit about the navigation piece of this.
1: If you asked Abe Lincoln what he was proudest of, he would have said he was proudest of the fact that when he was 19, without any training and without anyone telling him how to do it, he built A flatboat and then navigated from Indiana to New Orleans with livestock to sell and then navigated back home and didn't kill himself or the other person with him. And navigation is one of the sacred skills I refer to. It's one of the things that we all used to do. It's something that human beings have evolved, it's an adaptation to survive. And nowadays, none of us can read a map because we rely on technology. And if the phone goes out of service, it's Blair Witch. And Lincoln reminds us that being self-reliant means knowing how to do things for yourself. What you said about sort of the American dream, and, and I think Abe Lincoln is really the writer of the American dream, because it's in this period of time that the concept of you're going to work hard in your field in order to buy the next field, et cetera, et cetera. That was really Lincoln's life. That's that, he was the central figure in developing that mythology. And what I love about Lincoln, the reason I find him so relatable, is he did the hard work of learning how to be a lawyer because he hated working in the fields. This was not some principle. This was not some greed. Once he got money to buy a house, you know, the great thing about Lincoln is he didn't want more. We were just on strike for 148 days. And I, I told my fellow writers, you know, Lincoln said that any man who says he loves America but hates labor is not telling the truth. The history of America is the history of labor and work. And so navigation is not only a step that made Abe Lincoln Abe Lincoln, but it's a great metaphor for all of us. If you don't know how to go from A to B, you are consigned to just being lost. And the river metaphor that is, you know, all rivers go to the same place, they go to the sea, and our lives are like rivers. The difference is we get to steer. And I call on people, if you want to be Lincoln, learn how to do that.
0: But I think it's also an understanding of, to your point about learning how to steer, is yes, you you, you want to go from A to B, but you have to have the patience and diligence to say, how am I going to get there? That there may be obstacles. There may be places where I have to turn back for a little while. There may be places where I have to stop to rest, but not quit as opposed to saying, I'm just going to close my eyes, put the pedal to the metal and hope to God I don't run into anything while I'm doing it.
1: So Abe Lincoln famously said that if he had six hours to cut down a tree, he'd spend the first five sharpening the axe. And in so many ways, Lincoln spent his life sharpening his skills. He never stopped sharpening his skills. You know, I I love the man. My oldest son is named Abraham. If someone said you can have a, a dinner with four characters from history, who would you invite? And I'd say, I'd invite Abe Lincoln and leave the other two seats empty. I just relate and understand, I think, aspects of Lincoln's life that relate to my own life. What you said about not calling the South the Confederacy is so insightful and important. I want to come back to it. It's a small point, but I believe it's true. Abe Lincoln did a lot of different jobs. He was a postmaster, he was a surveyor, he was a riverboat captain, etc. The one thing he did the most, though, was write. Millions of words. And language mattered, and he was very careful with language. During the strike, it drove me crazy that writers who also make their living with language referred to AI. And I'd say, don't call it AI. AI is the cute acronym that the people who want to kill us with AI want us to use because they don't want us to use the word artificial intelligence. Why? First of all, it's an oxymoron, but you go to the supermarket, you see artificial sweeteners, no artificial sweeteners. I want true love, not artificial love. Artificial, bad. Guys, we're writers. Why did we buy into the enemy's definition? But don't get me started. I know Lincoln would have called it artificial intelligence.
0: All right. So let's move on to collaborate. Collaboration. Now, collaboration is akin to compromise. You have to work with others. There is no I alone can solve it. And again, in the context of his coming up, it's certainly especially his presidency. Right. We don't get the 13th Amendment. We don't get the Emancipation Proclamation without this. We don't get his willingness to work with different people you know look obviously famously team of rivals right his cabinet was made up of people who did not like him they all thought themselves his betters but here he was demonstrating his greatness for the fact that he as you said in one part of the book that he did this because he he knew he was the master of his own story he was the center of his own story they were all, all about him but he also understood especially in a place like Washington, D.C., that everybody wants to be the star in their
1: own movie. The historian Benjamin Thomas said about Lincoln's humor, it was so great, his humor, because he had such an understanding of his fellow human beings. And it's not a separate step. It's part of every step. It's empathy. If you want to be a great collaborator, and you should, right, let's take a moment and think about that the late great John McCain said that he wanted to be a part of something bigger than himself and to achieve more through the work of with others than he could by himself. And McCain was not, as he wrote in character accounts, et cetera. I mean, John McCain was the opposite of a born collaborator. He liked to go his own way and do his own thing. He was a maverick. That's right. And Abe Lincoln was an aloof loner who really wasn't born to be a great collaborator. And yet, Knowing that that was sort of a character defect, he spent his life learning how to collaborate well because he too saw how important it was. I talk in the book about Lincoln's three great collaborations, the three collaborations that made Lincoln who he was. Two of the three of those collaborations were with the worst people on earth, like the last people on earth you would ever want to collaborate with. His law partner of 14 years, Billy Herndon, who was an alcoholic, and Mary Todd Lincoln, who in the book I say, in the chapter both about collaboration and love, I think has been horribly profiled in a way that neglects just how strong that collaboration was. When Lincoln was elected president, he ran home and and announced, Mary, Mary, we are elected. Lincoln was not an I guy. Lincoln was an us guy. And you'd mentioned team of rivals, you know, Goodwin's book, The basis of the Spielberg movie Lincoln, I talk about both. I think the most current scholarship on the issue, and I tend to agree with it, is Lincoln never really collaborated with the cabinet. He put that herd of cats together so that he could sort of keep them in the tent rather than outside the tent. What Lincoln was great at is finding someone who he could collaborate with. And the tragedy of the Civil War, of course, is he couldn't find a general to collaborate to actually run the war. But once he found U.S. Grant, Lincoln's great abilities of collaboration are so clear. What does he say to Grant? He says to Grant, You handle the war. I will support whatever you do. He empowered Grant to win the war. A great collaborator is not about I. A great collaborator empowers the people around them. A great collaborator turns a blind eye to those character defects that all humans have. And at the end, a great collaborator doesn't share credit to the degree it's possible. He gives all the credit to the other person.
0: And remember what he said about Grant. He fights. That's right. Right. That's what he'd been looking for. A man who fought. That's right. right. McClellan didn't fight. Meade was, you know, milk toast. you know. But finally, Grant fought. He did what needed to be done to win the battle, to win the theater, to ultimately win the war. Right. And that's what Lincoln needed. Lincoln knew what he wanted. He didn't have the person to help him make it happen.
1: And famously, newspaper reporters asked Lincoln about Grant's drinking. And Lincoln famously said, if you could find the brand of whiskey, General Grant drinks, let me know so I can give it to the other generals. Now, Lincoln, in fact, was (laughs) a early proponent of sobriety. He was a reformer who was all but a teetotaler. And he was someone who spoke passionately about the need to not only control drinking in America, but to show compassion to alcoholics. What a great collaborator he was. He knew Grant's problems. He knew Grant's flaws, but he made light of them because he wanted to be a good collaborator with Grant. And, you know, it takes empathy to be a great collaborator. It also takes something that we have lost in this country entirely, which is magnanimity. Where is the magnanimity in our country? You know, the idea, the stoic idea that a human being, a man or woman's greatness, is often displayed in their modesty and in how they celebrate others, Lincoln would not have spiked the football. Lincoln would not have declared mission accomplished. And what I love about Lincoln is his modesty was so sincere, and yet his sense of his self-worth was so high, and his wisdom was so great, he managed to balance those things which is another reason he was such a great collaborator.
0: So let's talk about the next step, object. It is difficult to be the person who says no when everyone else is saying yes. It is difficult to be the truth teller when no one wants to tell the truth, when the truth is the enemy, not a commodity or even unknown, or in some ways our political opponents try to make it unknowable. And I think of... And we were lucky enough almost four years ago now to stand at the Cooper Union in New York City at the lectern from which Abraham Lincoln spoke and gave his 1860 right makes might speech in which really propelled him to the Republican nomination and ultimately the presidency. And he called out the South for everything. He didn't hold back in a time when. You know, there were people who didn't want to be quite that strident. You know, if you're if you're going to take this tack, South Carolina is already talking about leaving all these other, you know, there's nullification going on, everything else. But when the time came, he was not afraid to say, I object to this economy. I object to this behavior. I object to this institution. So tell us a little bit about how you see the necessity to object when it is necessary.
1: I start with talking about this concept, this relatively new concept of moral injury, the injury that's done on the battlefield when a soldier doesn't object to something that he or she knows is wrong. I say that the old term for that was moral cowardice, and it is rife in our society. And I think Lincoln would have said, first of all, never judge people for that. I love the Lincoln Project because the Lincoln Project objected to what was going on, and many of you suffered politically and professionally for it. I'm old enough to realize now that that kind of courage is rare, and we ought to rather than curse those who don't show it, we ought to more celebrate those who do. When I was at Yad Vashem with my kids, and we're looking at the section of those righteous Gentiles who stood up to hide Jews during the Holocaust. All I could feel was what extraordinary courage and selflessness that took. And we almost take it as a given that if we were in that position, we would have done the same thing. Abe Lincoln is the greatest example of the moral courage to object than any politician I can think of. And I say that for two reasons. He was a one-term congressman because he objected to our invasion of Mexico. and. While everyone else wanted war and conquest, Lincoln stood against it and got boot. The other sign of his tremendous moral courage is, in every aspect of his life, he avoided conflict. I mean, I was a trial lawyer long enough to know how extraordinary it is that Abe Lincoln would always tell litigants not to sue. Abe Lincoln, who made his living off of lawyers out of conflicts, sometimes paid money out of his own pocket to settle a case. That doesn't happen much anymore. He got into a duel at a time where if you backed out of a duel, you would literally lose face and position in society. But he got out of it because he knew he'd kill the guy. That this peaceful guy nevertheless objected, knowing it would cost so many people their lives and was forced to conduct the bloodiest war we've ever had and what became total war against civilians. But he did it because he had to object to slavery is a beautiful lesson for us. So I guess in celebrating Lincoln, what I'm trying to do, obviously, is celebrate the virtues that matter. And I say in the book, John Wilkes Booth didn't take anything from Lincoln that Lincoln wasn't prepared to give. The Stoics' achievement, the Stoics' victory, one becomes legendary when one does the right thing. Let fate determine the results. What I don't understand in our current political climate is the reward, the Stoics reward of living a virtuous life, a legendary life, a life worth of fame is sitting right in front of them like a fat batting, pitching, hanging curve that any one of the people that we know who I'm talking about could hit out of the park. And they don't even have the courage to take a cut at it. I don't understand that.
0: Because there's no sanction for standing outside the batter's box to continue the analogy, I can make money, I can get on corporate boards, I can get a TV show, I can write a book, I can you know give speeches at 50 or a hundred thousand bucks a pop, and at the end of the day, I don't care, or the flip side is, I have all the money in the world, and I could solve some real temporal problems here on Earth, but instead, I'm going to figure out how my head can sit in the the deep cold next to you know Walt Disney. Right. How do I make everybody immortal? Like,
1: come on. It's funny you talk about mortality because Lincoln, I say in the book, could be a real drag. He was obsessed with death, but a Stoic is supposed to be obsessed with death. You know, Seneca tells us we're supposed to hold our wife and children every morning and remind ourselves these will die. But you know what? One is free to do the right thing when one realizes we're not here forever.
0: But that's the whole point, though, Jonathan. That's the whole point, though, is you have to get up every day and say, what is it I can do to make myself better, to make my conditions better, to help my family, to help my community? And in the process, to your point, you will get the things that maybe you didn't ask for, but maybe somewhere in your head you desired, right? Which is, I am well thought of. When people see me on the street, they say, hey, Jonathan, how are you? Thanks for everything you're doing. And you get to take that away, right? That's yours. You get to hold on to that. But so many people either don't want it or don't need it, to your point about the analogy about taking the cut.
1: Well, this takes us to the second to last step, which I haven't read all 60,000 Lincoln books, but I've read a lot of them. And the one thing that has never really been discussed enough that I think is such an important step to being Lincoln is love. Lincoln's bodyguard wrote that he was frustrated because people would say to him, tell me what Lincoln was like. Why was he so great? And the bodyguard said, I I don't have words. Then he said that when Tad, who was the youngest Lincoln and who today would probably be diagnosed with uh, being on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, and he had learning disabilities and he had a facial deformity, Whenever Tad would misbehave by breaking into the cabinet, Lincoln would get down on his knees and take as long as it took for Tad to say what he had to say. And Lincoln's bodyguard said that was Lincoln, that he had never known a man whose every aspect was based on love. And love doesn't get the same press as hate. Hate is cheaper to make, easier to convey. No one has to explain to us why. Cain killed Abel, right? Who knows why Romeo loved Juliet? And you can't really name a lot of historical events that are based on love. But Lincoln loved his fellow Americans and his fellow human beings. He loved them. And, you know, from that love came his greatness.
0: Well, and to that point, the closing of his second inaugural With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. He could do it with Tad at the cabinet. He could do it from the rostrum
1: at the Capitol to all Americans. And the last step is do it now.
0: <laughs> what the hell are you waiting for?
1: Yeah. Each step <laughs> spell you know, begins with a word that spells out Lincoln. Do it now. Lincoln said we can't evade the responsibility of tomorrow by ignoring it today. I got a whole shelf. It's our motto.
0: Ha- it's the Lincoln
1: Project's motto. That's right. Well, I, I know what I'm doing here. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I am a fan. You know, I just, our oldest son is named Abraham. My love for the man is uh, as strong as my love for the country. I know he's rooting for us. And I know that our future is in our own hands. And maybe it's because I have three kids in their early 20s, two of whom are elementary school teachers. You know, I'm hopeful for the future. I think the next generation is going to save us with a sophisticated empathy that's unlike any other that's existed. But damn it, those of us who still have 20 good years got to get off our duff and actually do something instead of just complaining
0: listen i i really do believe to that point and to close out here that your kids your kids generation my kids are on the other end of the tail end of generation z they saved our bacon politically last year and i think that they will be a key component in doing that next year 2024 and as i have told many of them and i've gotten you know to to speak to many young activists is I'm really sorry we this up for you. <laughs> and we're doing, there are some of us doing all we can to make sure we can clean up as much of the mess before it's your job to take over. And so I think you're absolutely right. But, you know, just to close on that thought, you got to do it now. But you talk about the darkest days of the Civil War. And we think back, Jonathan. First of all, I think this is a whole other show we could do. So many Americans either ignore history or don't even know it, right? And that's always at our peril. And you think back to, World War II, Right. We won World War II in a smashing victory, but we didn't know it was going to be that way. Lincoln and the Union won the Civil War. But for a couple of years, we didn't know that. And remember that Lincoln thought he was going to lose the 1864 election to George McClellan, who was going to be willing to make peace with the South. It always, in retrospect, looks like, well, of course, that's how it was going to turn out. But you don't know that, which to your point about doing it now, which is to everyone who listens and God bless you all for listening. Get off our asses, get to
1: work. What did Joe Hill say? Don't mourn, organize. I think it's more true now than ever.
0: So, Jonathan, before we let you go, where can we find you online, on social media, if you dare to go there? Where can we find the book? Where can we find your other work? What else are you working on?
1: Thank you for asking. I have a play that uh, we're doing the fifth production of it called Sisters-in-Law about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor's relationship. And it's going to be in New York in uh, the beginning of next year. And I've got some TV projects that I have to now turn in, unfortunately, because we're not on strike. I mean, I'm glad not to be on strike. But, you know, this book has become, uh, I have a podcast now called How to Be Abe Lincoln with my good and great friend, Greg Grunberg. And we have folks come on to talk about Lincoln. We had Mayim Bialik on uh, last week. As far as social media, I'm off it. But you can find the book on Amazon and every place where they sell books. And the podcast is on all the platforms.
0: Well, that's terrific, and everybody tune in as always. Again, you can find me on Twitter for now at Reed Galen on Threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP, and on Substack the Homefront. I hope you'll all check it out. Jonathan Shapiro, thanks for joining me today. I'm a huge
1: fan. Thank you for having me. I'm honored.
0: And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.